From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. Good morning and welcome to the CQ Budget Podcast. My name is Pete Cohn. I'm the fiscal and uh, budget policy editor for CQ Roll Call. I'm guest hosting today for our one and only budget tracker, David Lerman, who's taken some well-deserved time off. I hope you all will forgive me because nobody can fill uh, David Lerman's shoes. I think we all know that. But the guy you really want to hear from is with us today is John Donnelly, who is our award-winning senior defense r- reporter at CQ Roll Call, who, a guy who's, who's really seen it all when it comes to defense budget battles. And uh, John, I think it's really opportune to have you on the show today because what we've been seeing with the defense budget in the, over the last couple of years since President Biden took office and really going back several years before that, but it's really quite astounding what's been happening with the budget proposals from President Biden the last couple of years. And I just hope you, I want to kind of just take a step back a, a little bit and ask you, what is behind this? Because it's not like this department, the Pentagon, is starved for cash. <laughs> you know, the Biden budget proposed some pretty hefty amounts of money the last two years for the Pentagon. But last year, we saw the Armed Services Committee decide to add $25 billion on top of that. I mean, we're already talking about the GDP of several small countries, <laughs> you know. Right. So last year, we have $25 billion added by the Armed Services Committees. The Appropriations Committees decided to see that and raise it by another $5 billion in fiscal 22. So they gave $30 billion on top of the, the, the Biden budget request. And now fast forward to this year, and of course, inflation has, has reared its head to a degree we haven't seen in 40 years. But now we've got the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee proposing to add $44 billion on top of the Biden request. And then House Armed Services, we, we kind of thought was going to be a bulwark against these, these attempts to, you know, to really push the level of defense spending up. And I think about half the Democrats on that committee decided, hey, we need $37 billion more on top of the Biden request. So, John, what's behind all this? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you, 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 I'm really glad you framed it like that because you set it up nicely. And, and there's, there's a little bit of a, not a little bit, a lot of a myth that the Defense Department is struggling. You know, let's back up even further to look at what's happened to the defense budget over, since 9-11, right? So uh, from 9-11 until about a decade ago, the budget practically doubled. Almost, almost doubled, and we were involved in two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then it came down a little bit, and it came down mainly because we ended the the major occupation status of those two wars, and to a much lesser extent because of the Budget Control Act, right? But in the last five years, we've seen it ramp back up, not to the level it was at at the Iraq slash Afghanistan uh, peak. But it's still been ramping up big time. And I went back and looked at the just the Defense Department, uh, which is the overwhelming percentage of the national defense spending. There's also nuclear weapons spending in the Energy Department and, and other sort of cats and dogs and other agencies. But I looked at the uh, Defense Department spending, including supplementals, over the last five years from since you know to fiscal 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And in FY17, it was a little over $600 billion. And in FY22, the current fiscal year, it was at $756 billion in change. So that's 
uh, more than a hundred fifty billion dollar increase in the last in five in the last five fiscal years. Now that's then year dollars. I'm not I'm not accounting for inflation there, but even so, it's a tremendous surge in spending. And yeah, last year you saw the Armed Services Committees add twenty five, and the appropriators go up even higher. And this year, instead of twenty five, as you pointed out, it's either thirty seven in the House. Or forty-four billion dollars more. Now, in FY, Biden wanted to increase defense spending above the current level, the FY twenty-two level, by more than thirty billion dollars. And so, instead of a thirty billion plus increase that Biden wants, which is not insignificant, oh by the way, we're gonna we're looking at a on the order of a seventy billion dollar increase above the current level of spending. And there was a great quote from Richard Shelby this week saying that the that the that this proposed 70 odd billion dollar increase in from FY22 to FY23 was, quote, a a good first start. (laughs) Now, you got to You got to admire his uh, negotiating uh, skills, Um, but he's probably right. They'll probably go even higher. And oh, by the way, we're not we're not even accounting for the uh, usual uh, uh, emergency spending. We're talking about just the, the so-called base budget for national defense. In FY22, there was something on the order of $16 billion in emergency spending for things like Afghanistan refugees, also natural disasters like the uh, oil spill in Hawaii. So, you know, that is going to be tacked on top of what we're talking about here. So getting to the why, now that's a really hard question, right? You, you cited inflation, which I think is a big issue. People are making an opportunity of this crisis, hawks are in any, in any event, in the sense that uh, we don't know what inflation is going to be in fiscal 2023. You know, that's what we're talking about here is a budget that doesn't start until October of this year and goes into calendar year 2023, you know, at which point inflation may be very different than it is right now. It may not, and maybe it's prudent to throw some money in there just to be sure. But we're talking about like probably at least a 10% increase in defense spending. And the consumer inflation is about 8% right now. It's probably not going to keep up like that. And the defense inflation, which they use a whole different you know set of metrics, it's not quite as high. So I know that's a that's a mouthful, but I mean I think I think you did a good job of setting this up because I I feel like People are not fully aware of how well the Pentagon's doing fiscally in recent years. And even during the budget control years, you know, I talked about the five-year increase of $150 billion. Four of those years were during the Budget Control Act, where Congress just, yeah, there were caps, but Congress increased them every year. And they did so for non-defense programs, too. I don't want to suggest that defense spending is the only thing that's sort of uh, running amok here, but it has doing, it's been doing exceedingly well. So real quickly, just to finish on the why part, I mean, inflation is a key issue, but you know, you have this, these institutional um, drivers, the people who serve on the Armed Services Committee are there for a reason. They're there because they have you know, either uh, DOD facilities or contractors in their districts. Their campaigns are bankrolled by the contractors. So there is a lot of vested interest at play here. 
And yet the Armed Services Committees are viewed almost as if they're disinterested experts on the subject of defense. They're not disinterested, right? They're very much interested in the money flow. And yet, you know, the rest of the Congress kind of, you know, exceeds to their to their wishes and then some, as we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah, it's really interesting. And the same goes for the appropriations committees. I mean, you know, certainly yeah. you get a lot of contractor influence, a lot of jobs and, and you know, hardware being built in, in some of those states and, and districts. One question I would have is the House uh, Appropriations Committee this past week, they held the line at the Biden budget. I think they went a little bit above, if you look at the MILCON bill, the Military Construction VA bill, uh, they went above uh, for uh, for MILCON projects. So they're a little bit above the, the Biden request, but only, I think, by about $3 billion so far. We ha- haven't seen a full breakdown, including DOE, uh, Energy Department, and some of the other agencies. But how, how is it that, that the House appropriators are able to kind of rein themselves in a little bit to the extent that their comrades on the Armed Services Committee and in the Senate are, are not? Is it because they just, they know that at the end of the day, that, that number is going to go up? And so you know, they don't have to do the heavy lifting. They can kind of keep the, the spending levels for the other agencies they like, knowing that at the end of the day, it's going to be more in line with what the armed services committees are doing. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I don't really know the answer to it exactly. Um, there may be some political um, issues at play that are different on the armed services committee versus the appropriations committee. You know, there may be a few Democrats there facing tougher reelection battles. I'm thinking of like Elaine Luria, for example, in Virginia, you know, who has to show her bona fides on defense and, 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 and that sort of thing. But I guess my, my best guess would be that the armed services committees, and we haven't mentioned this so far, this is kind of monopoly money in a sense. The authorizers don't have actual cash, right? They're just basically endorsing a certain level of spending, but the appropriators have to actually provide it. And so in a sense, it's a little bit more of a serious game for the appropriators than it is for the authorizers. And so they realize that, um, this is just me surmising here. I don't, I haven't done the reporting to back this up, but, but I assume that for Betty McCollum, for example, she's going to hold the line a little bit harder on the Biden budget request number and not go higher because she needs to have a strong negotiating position uh, going into conference because she's talking about, unlike the authorizers, she's talking about real money here. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. That's I think that's a point that probably doesn't get doesn't doesn't get made enough because yeah, you know, we in the media we try to explain everything in in a way that is in plain English for for our readers. But ninety nine out of a hundred people don't know that the armed services committees don't have right. a dime to their name in right, terms of right. defense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see a lot of headlines out there. House Armed Services Committee approves you know X amount uh, defense budget, and actually they didn't do that at all. They're just sort of setting a, a broad, you know, framework that the appropriators have to fill in. I think that's a point that, you know, always bears repeating. Yep. And, uh, and you mentioned Betty McCollum, who is the, uh, the chairperson of the House Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. She's relatively new in that position, right? She just came in, I think, last year for the first time. So, uh, you know, clearly we've, she's only got two of these cycles on, under her belt right now. But and, and to your point, I think that's right. I think she knows that, and Rosa DeLauro, the chair, chairwoman of the full committee, I think they know that that number is going to go up in the end of the day, but this is this sort of does preserve their negotiating position. You know, that's a really good point. But um, you know, looking at some of the the, the members that you, that we've talked about and their top priorities, and you mentioned some who are in tough re-election races like Luria. Um, there's Jared Golden, who I think offered the amendment in the House Armed Services Committee. 
So let's, I guess, let's, let's talk about that amendment that they offered. I think it was Luria and Goldman who teamed up on it. And they're two of the most, according to our rankings of, by uh, inside elections with Nathan Gonzalez, they're two of the most vulnerable Democrats up for re-election this year. So can you unpack that amendment? That, like, why was it $37 billion and what was in it that is so important to those particular members? And frankly, a huge majority on the committee. I think you know half of the Democrats supported it and it was 42 to 17 vote. So what was the big deal about what was in that amendment? Yeah. There's certainly both uh, Golden from Maine and Luria from Virginia. They have major shipbuilding interests in their states. And uh, you can see, uh, especially in the way they described it um, in their press releases, they put the ships on the top, right? Um, for example, they authorized uh, uh, another, a third uh, destroyer in the, in, the for, in the upcoming fiscal year uh, for the Navy um, and some money for shipyards and whatnot. But when you look at the when you look at the breakdown of the of the amendment, the thirty seven billion dollar amendment, um, it, it, you're looking at it going, how did they get to thirty seven billion dollars? Well, they did so sort of a half a billion dollars at a time, right? I can't remember how many pages this amendment is. It's like sixty some pages or something, with like twenty three million here and and four hundred seventy million there and one point seven billion there. So. There's not a whole lot of like really big chunks of change in there. One of the bigger elements is sort of a fund that they gave DOD, DOD or authorized DOD to get. Again, this money still has to be appropriated, but it probably will be. Um, is uh, I think it was $7.4 billion. Just here's some extra money because of inflation, right? And some of that is like dedicated to uh, military construction, for example. So in other words, some of it's like big pots of money, sort of slush funds, if you will. But most of it is specific projects. There's $550 million authorized uh, in additional weapons and military aid for Ukraine. Biden asked for 300. Well, actually, yeah, Biden asked for 300 million for Ukraine, and it's going to be a billion dollars in, in the House Armed Services bill you know, mostly partly because of what the chairman wanted to do, but mostly because of this amendment. So you've got uh, you've got money in there, too, for the uh, a lot of money for the Energy Department's National Nuclear Security Administration, the Nuclear Weapons Agency, you know, for infrastructure at places like Savannah River. So, you know, there's there's also um, F-35 fighter jets that were not officially in the request, although the Air Force said, hey, if you find any extra money, you know, we wouldn't mind getting them. But, you know, I also, as I was thinking about talking to you today, I thought to myself, well, Pete might ask me about cuts. Let, let, me, let me see if I can find some cuts. And they're pretty hard to find. I mean, they pretty much, it was like everything you want and then some. I'm not saying there weren't cuts because, and some of them are going to be found when, when some of the reports come out. We haven't seen all the reports from these uh, defense committees, and sometimes the cuts are buried in there because they don't want to advertise them necessarily in their press releases and whatnot. But mostly it's a little bit more what you wanted and a little bit more. So the, the Golden Amendment, the short answer is it's a little bit here, a little bit there, adding up to $37 billion. And of course, in the Senate Armed Services Committee, they had a similar amendment except more, $44 billion extra for a lot of the same projects. Right, I was going to ask you about that. So, you know, what are the what are they going after there? Um, well, you know, a lot of um, uh, military construction. You know, specific projects called out in military construction. You know, some a few million dollars, some 
like the Savannah River uh, project, you know, close to a half a billion dollars. So they have a pot of money that's just for, quote unquote, inflation and military construction. And then they have like, I counted them up last night, more than $800 million in specific military construction projects. So the Senate, yeah, the Senate, the Senate and the, and the, and the House bill are pretty similar. Uh, Ukraine money, I mentioned, in the House uh, authorization bill, likewise in the Senate authorization amendment, they added some additional money for Ukraine, uh, for, for, for munitions. You know, we're, we are sending a lot of our munitions over to Ukraine and we need to backfill uh, those stocks. So there's a lot, there's a heck of a lot more similarities than disagreements between the armed services bills. There's a couple hot button policy issues that will come up that are very different in the two bills. The Senate Armed Services Committee proposes to require women to sign up for selective service, the draft, even though we're not going to have a draft anytime soon. The House Armed Services Committee does not. This was in the Senate bill last year. They dropped it out in the conference. That'll be a big discussion. It's something that really conservatives um, are very much against. People like Josh Hawley, who sits on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And another really hot button issue is going to be Guantanamo Bay, the prison there for terrorism suspects. Year in and year out, we have a debate on this. And every year, the people who want to keep Guantanamo open win. And they probably will again if passed this prologue. But the Senate Armed Services Committee would retain in law all the restrictions on closing that facility or building new facilities for those prisoners in the U.S. The House Armed Services Committee has none of that. So that's another thing that's going to have to be hashed out in addition to all the dollar figures. A couple other differences, there's like there's a lot more on PFAS, the, the, the forever chemicals. Um, there's a, there seems to be a, a bit more on that in the House Armed Services Bill than in the Senate Armed Services Bill in terms of strictly regulating uh, that. That's a huge problem at uh, U.S. military bases, uh, this, these, these chemicals uh, leaching into the drinking water. Right. So you got $44 billion in the Senate. I, I, sometimes it just baffles me how they come up with these numbers. I mean, you, you mentioned part, part of it maybe is the unfunded wish lists, right? They right. have these, these lists every year. So there's these, these, you know, some of these are specific asks from the military branches that just didn't make it into the Biden budget request. So you know, maybe some of it is backfilling that. Um, you mentioned military construction seems to be a big focus. I mean, there, there were apparently some pretty big cuts in the Biden budget proposal to MILCON projects. I wonder... You know, I, I, I think it, that that seems does seem to be fairly typical, though, right? Because the administration tends to focus on the overseas bases and then Congress will come in and just and just, you know, flood the zone with, with money for domestic projects that are that are uh, unrequested and, you know, in various lawmaker states and districts. So shipbuilding, obviously, that seems to be kind of one of these perennial issues, too. They always seem to end up backfilling. Um, F-35s, that's kind of a lo- really long running, you know, budgetary some people call it a boondoggle. Others call it a jobs program. So, you know, those seem to be kind of the areas where Congress is sort of flexing its muscles and, and trying to get money added back. Yeah. I don't know why they chose $37 billion instead of $38 billion. You know, I, it's, but, but yeah, a lot of it is from the so-called wish lists or unfunded priority lists, as they prefer to call them, um, which is, uh, you know, like I mentioned the F-35 earlier with the Air Force. Hey, if you happen to find a little extra cash, here's what we would like to spend it on in order of priority. And they, you know, it's actually a formal requirement now that they send those lists and that they're 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 made 
you know, they're, they become publicly available. That definitely drove a lot of it. And it, it, it's a de facto part of the budget request now in the Defense Department. And maybe it exists in other non-defense uh, departments and agencies, but uh, I don't know about it. Yeah, not really, to, not to that extent, by any by any stretch. Yeah. Not that we've heard of, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, another thing, you, you, I haven't heard a lot of Republicans complaining about the uh, effects of inflation on, uh, on highway spending or environmental spending. So that's another way that Defense Department you know, that they're given kind of special consider consideration in Congress. But yeah, the wish list become like, uh, you know, as I said, a de facto part of the budget. It's like uh, if it's on the wish list it, it, as a member of Congress, if I want to uh, defend that spending, it really helps my case to say that, you know, the top admiral in the Navy, you know, has included this on his list of top priorities that didn't make the budget. It's another way of saying it is one of his top budget priorities, right? So it definitely helps the case, um, and it's become uh, it's become a driver of of excess spending. And you know, there's there's a real lack of discipline in this process. You know, I'm not saying that they, the Defense Department doesn't need more money in a lot of areas, but it just seems like there's so much more pressure to add than there is to offset those ads. You know, and another thing we haven't touched on here that's a huge part of the debate every year is retiring older aircraft and ships, something that the Defense Department asks Congress to do every year, saying either this ship is or plane is too old or it doesn't fit the, the, the missions that we foresee. Uh, we need to retire these so that we can spend money on hypersonic weapons or cybersecurity or other more future-leaning future systems. And year in and year out, Congress says, no, you have to keep operating that ship, <laughs> even though, you know, it can barely make it into the water. So there's that every year. For example, there's this class of ships called the littoral combat ship. The Navy wanted to retire nine of them. And Congress is so far saying, eh, maybe four, you know, keep, keep at least five of them. And by the end of the process, they may require them to keep all nine of them, right? Um, so that's money they have to spend on that, that they wanted to save and put elsewhere. And two of them are going to be in Alabama. Two of them are going to be in Maine, right? Like, <laughs> There's definitely kind of... a lot of that. There's definitely a lot of that. Definitely. So yeah, so retirements or the congressional resistance to retirements is always a huge part of the budget process. And Congress has allowed DOD to retire a lot of things in the last few years, but there's always resistance and it costs money and it, and it, 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 there's an opportunity cost because that's money they can't spend on something that is more important to them. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so, John, we've only got a couple more minutes, and I, I wanted to just quickly get you on the timeline here because we know with the appropriations process, it's going to bog down. We, you know, the House will, will pass their bills on the on the floor to the extent they can. They'll get through as many of them as possible before the August recess. But until the principals sit down in the House and the Senate, Republican and Democrat, there's not going to be. They got to figure out what we call the top line for appropriations. What's the total amount of money they have to spend and how much will go to defense. That last year we saw was heavily influenced by the timeline for the NDAA, the defense authorization bill. So, you know, once they saw what that top line was in the NDAA, they said, you know, the, the Republicans looked at that and said, okay, here's our starting point, you know, and that's kind of kicked things off. And they were able to get to a conclusion on the appropriations process it still took them a few months, but they were eventually able to get there. So I guess what's the timeline for the NDAA now that both committees have acted? Are we going to see that come up, pass in both chambers next month? 
I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's the plan anyway for both the House Armed Services Committee bill and the Senate Armed Services Committee bill to be on the floor in July. And oh, by the way, the uh, House Appropriations Defense bill is also, they're also looking to put that on the floor in July. So, you know, we may have uh, three of the four pieces of the defense uh, puzzle, or well, at least, you know, off the floor by the August recess. But then we'll see what happens because it's, you know, it's, it sounds like it's far along in the process, but in some ways it's not because on the authorization bill, remember this is an election year. So, you know, there can be little uh, things thrown in that probably have nothing to do with defense, but that can really grind the whole process to a halt and, and prolong things. And so, yeah, I think the the appropriators are going to take their cues from the authorizers. So so to the extent the authorizers are delayed, it could then delay the appropriations process. But it's pretty safe bet that we're going to have a a continuing resolution that 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 this funding process won't be completed by the October 1 start of fiscal 2023, because I think it's 12 of the last 13 years. That's what's what's happened. And sometimes it's uh, brief, but sometimes it goes into the calendar next calendar year, you know, February, March. So, yeah, it's going to take it's going to take a while. And I guess it really is going to mostly depend because there seems to be a a lot of consensus, bipartisan consensus on roughly the amount of money and roughly where it's going to go. I think it's going to be affected. The, the, the length of the process and the compl- complexity of the process is going to be mainly affected by whether there are these political issues that get airdropped into the process, you know, whether it's abortion or guns or something. It may be tangentially related to defense in some way. Uh, it may not be. But I would look out for those for those things to emerge. Yeah, I mean, the lawmakers that always try to attach their pet issue to the NDAA because it's become law. What sixty one out of the last sixty one years? Yes, like, right, exactly. So it's it's incredible. You know, authorization bills rarely pass. I mean, they are not must pass bills, but the NDAA gets special deference, and it's pretty remarkable. You know, the appropriators really don't listen to any any other committee except the Armed Services Committee. So. We'll be watching that that with real interest. And the fact that it has been so successful so many years in a row increases the odds that it will continue to be so because nobody wants to be the first one to screw up that record. Right. <laughs> Great. All right. Good talking to you, John. Great to be with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And um, please join us next week for our next edition of the CQ Budget Podcast. Have a great day. 